0: Welcome to Grief Is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am again sitting here with a wide smile on my face because it is such an honor to get to sit in my chair because I lightly stalk all my favorite people on the internet and then I sweetly convince them to come and have an hour-long conversation with me. And today I have Julie McFadden, aka Hospice Nurse Julie, who has been educating the wide world about the things that we need to know about death. She's here with me today. Julie, thank you so much. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm so oh, I'm, I'm I'm delighted. This I have a million questions. I know that that is sort of your shtick, which is you answer questions and you are in service to all the things that people don't know. I want to start with the question that I ask everybody, which is, what brought you into the world of grief and loss and death?
1: Well, I'm a nurse by trade, and I've been a nurse for 15 years. First you know, eight or nine years I spent in the hospital being an ICU nurse, I had a very different career path. So I thought I never thought about hospice, I was going to get my NP or go to anesthesia and do other things. And as I was an ICU nurse, I started seeing this huge gap in our healthcare system about talking about end of life. We just weren't doing it in general. I'm speaking in generalities, obviously, because some people are great at doing it. Some people aren't. Some hospitals are great at doing it. Some aren't. And where I was, you know, we weren't great at doing it. And I felt like we were doing a disservice to a lot of our patients and families by trying to quote unquote, keep them alive. And I had a couple of patients that really changed my life by me being the advocate for them after it took a long time for me to get brave enough to say something during rounds about, we need to have a family meeting, talk about end of life goals. When are we going to do this? And I started realizing that, you know, that one little sentence had a lot of power and people listened to me and they, like, I think people just need one person to kind of stand up or advocate. And then it was like, I was saying what everyone else was thinking anyway. So I had a couple of patients where they did die because I brought this up, but so it was, it was strange for me to feel like, wow, I had this family meeting about end of life goals for this patient. And that afternoon, the family decided to take them off machines and then they died. Wow! Uh, and it was powerful for, you know, it's hard one. It, I felt a little guilty, but as time went on, I realized that was the right thing to do. That was the right thing to do to, to, uh, to tell the families the truth. About what we were kind of all saying as healthcare workers to each other, but not saying to the family and to the patient who was lying unconscious in the bed. Um, So those experiences got me really interested in death and dying and knowing that I just really wanted to do this differently. There has to be, everyone's going to die. If you're going to die, there has to be a better way than being hooked up to machines and, and being in an ICU bed or any kind of hospital bed in a hospital, not at home. So I made my transition to hospice just by kind of taking a leap. And the first couple of years were just so eye-opening by how our bodies can naturally die and what that really looks like. And then that eventually transitioned into me a couple of years ago, getting on social media and talking about, you know, what death really looks like, because people don't know. People don't know, including other healthcare workers. I didn't know as an ICU nurse what it looked like and how our bodies literally know how to do it and do different things biologically to help us die. That is like so fascinating to me to this day. (laughs) And and I talk about it every day. Yeah. So that's, and here I am. I love it. Well, your social media account,
0: which is vast, it's hundreds of thousands of people who are following you are, lets us know that even though culturally we seem to want to avoid conversations about grief and loss, even inside hospitals where people are dying on the regular Obviously, culturally, people are also craving it, right? They need to be able to talk about it. Before we go forward, I don't want to assume that anybody really genuinely knows what hospice is because I've had enough conversations with people that the words palliative care and the and the description of hospice they think of like an old house that old people go to to die can you just uh, like give us a definition of what we're talking about when we're talking about hospice care yes
1: yeah, so i'm going to talk about what it's like in the united states because i feel like yeah. it probably is different other places i know yes. it's different in different countries so in the united states hospice is medicare funded so i like to say that because it's funded by the federal government, right? So it should be standardized across the US because we legally, like Medicare is our boss, we get paid through Medicare. So all hospice companies across the nation, whether it's profit or not, is, is funded by Medicare and should all be doing what Medicare says we are allowed and not allowed to do, which is great. And there's some downsides because there's a lot of red tape and there's a lot of rules that we have to follow. And some hospice companies are better at following them than than others. So that's the first thing. And hospice is in home usually. There are some states and some facilities where you can go to a hospice care facility where you, you know, they have 20 beds, everyone theres on hospice, and there's caregivers and nurses and doctors there. But mostly hospice is in the home where the doctors, the nurses, the the CNAs, social workers, chaplains, we come to you in your home. but the majority of the work, falls on the family. You know, I would say 80% of the work falls on the family, the day-to-day caring for their loved one dying. And in order to be on hospice, technically you have to have less than six months to live from a terminal diagnosis. And then depending on the diagnosis, there's other criteria as well. So it gets really specific and I could really talk about that forever and ever, but it's probably kind of boring, but that's the generality
0: Oh, and also
1: last thing, you cannot be on curative therapy and be in hospice. So if you have some type of cancer, you can't be getting chemo and radiation and surgeries for the cancer and be on hospice. You have to do one or the other.
0: So that is exactly what I was just going to ask you because my dad's experience with small cell cancer was that he was in a facility that was a rehab facility in the state of Massachusetts, where some people were getting well, but basically he needed nursing care. And when it was clear that his body, you know, his system, his little super highway was beginning to shut down, they sent him home and my mom was not ready for the word hospice, which we understand to be the period of time Of care around end of life.
1: The whole idea of this idea of like how you said your mom wasn't ready for the word hospice. Like when I hear those things as a hospice nurse, one, I always try to meet people where they're at and I understand, right? Like hospice gets a really bad rap and even that word or even, and I always try to explain it like, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And that's okay too. Or like I always say, like, you know, everyone has an end of life journey, all of us are going to have one. Like we don't know when. So and so will for sure die, but we do know just through what's going on that, that 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 it's coming up. It's coming up, and and hospice can help you. Hospice can help you with that, right? Like uh, at the end of the day, you just don't want your loved one to suffer. If if death is inevitable, unfortunately, in this situation, the best most people just don't want their loved one to suffer. So like hospice mm-hmm. is that is that group. We help them hopefully have a peaceful end of life journey, a peaceful, meaningful, end of life, prepared journey, end of life journey. And sometimes that's kind of like, oh, okay. And then sometimes people are still like, no, (laughs) no, we don't want that. We don't want that. That's not um, what we want. You know,
0: my mom was not able to, I mean, it was the day before my dad died that she said, I think we should call hospice. And I was like, well, they're already here. And again, what I know from the neuroscience perspective is that the brain has a vast capacity to not know what it doesn't want to know. And at least in our case, we were able to sort of fold that in. But I will say, and I write about this in my memoir, we we by the time my dad was dying, I, we really had like one favorite nurse, you know, one person who in a very short period of time felt like family. And I think there are a lot of people out there who will tell you that that was their experience with their Mm -hmm. hospice worker, that that person became, was with them and and caring for the family Mm -hmm. in such an intimate time. But what I found comforting is that she was not afraid of death. She was the only person in that house that was not afraid of my father dying. Yeah. And my dad, I want to, I want to have you talk about this because this is what I think you're, you do so well is like, let me just give you the norms of this. But my dad was one of those people whose muscles slacked uh-huh. and he sounded as though he was moaning in pain uh-huh. as his body was shutting down and it scared me. Uh-huh. I mean, I walked into a scenario that sounded like he was, and she said to me, He's not in any pain. I've been monitoring the medication. He will not flinch if I like poke him with this fork. She was holding a Uh fork. And I was like, I tilted my head and she was like, I will do it. Would you like me to poke him with this fork? Like I can stab him with this fork. Would you? And I was like, oh, she's, she's had this conversation before. Uh And then I felt more relaxed and safe because she wasn't afraid of the fact that he was dying. Yeah, she wasn't afraid of him being in pain because she knew he wasn't, and she was the only person in our house that that was the case.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Can you talk a little bit about what we see in people as they are going through the natural process of death? That maybe, pe- maybe the average folk are not aware of some of the things, like the moaning or what the body does as it's shutting down.
1: Yeah. So in general, so actively dying is like the last part. There's like phases of death and dying. And like the further you are away from death, the grayer it is. And the more like, ah, everyone's different. You never really, you're not really sure. This could mean this, this could mean that. But the actively dying part, which is the last phase, usually a few hours to a few days before death, if you're dying a natural death on hospice or otherwise natural death. A natural death means you're dying from something, but we're not doing any interventions to stop it. Yeah. So yeah. a few hours to a few days is called actively dying, and almost everyone looks the same. Almost, no matter what you're dying from, and that is they are usually unconscious. Their eyes may be open, open, which kind of freaks people out because they're not making any eye contact. Their eyes are kind of fixed. Uh, their mouths are usually open. And that's because both of those things take muscle. It takes muscles to close your eyes, it takes muscles to close your mouth, it takes muscles to blink. And that's just not happening anymore. And your brain neurologically is not cueing your body to do all of these unconscious things that we, you and I do all of day long for our whole lives, right? We're just, we don't, we don't know how much is operating behind the scenes when we're conscious, right? So so you're unconscious. Your body's not swallowing. Your body is not keep blinking your eyes, keeping your eyes shut, keeping your mouth shut. You can have like rhythmic moaning. So, mm-hmm. so we don't just to be honest, just to be truthful, you don't see that all the time. That's not something yes. I would say. Oh, everyone actively trying yeah, to right. rhythm me moan. But that's right. Whenever I hear like moaning, that's pretty consistent and pretty rhythmic and pretty like uh, that. That's a cue that like that's not really pain. One that's kind of a self soothing. Uh, mechanism that happens just naturally in the body sometimes. And it also can just be a a part of the breath, almost like snoring. Yep. So you hear a lot of, uh, you can hear noises that sound bad, but don't necessarily mean pain or suffering. A lot of the the terminal secretions or what people call it the death rattle, because that happens a lot right before death. Where the breath can sound gurgly or the breath sounds wet, people often think that they're like drowning on their their fluid, but it's 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 truly not. I mean, really, if the we we medicate that sound for the family, we do not do it for the patient. The patient is unconscious and does not care. How do we know that? People are always like, well, how do you know? They could be in there thinking this. And we know that because one, we have nonverbal scales we use all the time as, as mm-hmm. clinicians. And two, we're around it all the time. We know what someone who is being affected by their death looks like and someone who is not. It is, it is so abundantly clear to, usually to everybody because it's pretty obvious, but also like to healthcare workers who are around it all the time. We know if someone's being, if someone feels uncomfortable. Because we see it all the time. We see the difference. Because right, it's
0: energy and you can feel the energy. You come to it like really like cons- a mother with a baby
1: that knows what yes. the baby is about. Yeah. Yes. I always say that dying people are like babies. Babies can't tell us verbally what they need, but the mother, people who are around babies all the time can tell certain cries, can right. tell when they're fussy, if they're teething, if they're hungry, if they need change. That is how a dying person is in the actively dying and the actively dying section of death. Also, the changes in breathing, changes in breathing. Everyone dying will have changes in breathing. Almost everyone. They will not breathe like we are used to seeing people breathe. And that if you don't know that, you can think your loved one is struggling to breathe. Yeah, You can think they're uncomfortable. You can think something's really wrong and it's not, it's truly a biological part of death and dying. And it's all, I mean, scientifically it's all because of like, you we have, our bodies are so, are so specialized. And like in the ICU, we would constantly measure blood gases, you know, how's their pH? What's their O2 level? What's their CO2 level? It has to be this perfect balance for you to be functioning at a, a live level, right? And when you when that's not happening, all of those things start slowly changing purposely. So you can die yeah. because your body's dying. Like your body's doing it for you. your calcium levels go up. So you get sleepy. So your, your, your blood gases and stuff, that's all changing. So it's making you breathe different because your CO2 levels higher, your O2 levels lower, like things are happening in your body. Chemically that's making it happen. And if you just let it happen, and that's the, it's like the most natural thing you can do. That's what I always say to families who are like, what can we do? Or what should we do? It's like, you ask yourself, are they clean? Are they safe? Are they comfortable? If they are, you do nothing. You're just with them. And Mm -hmm. if you're wondering, and the reason it's like, well, are they comfortable, right? Because they're breathing weird. They sound weird. They look different. That's where the hospice workers come in to help educate and say, no, 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 this is normal. They look okay. They look okay. Changes in body temperature, hot, cold, a little more purplish, a little more reddish, just depends. All of that's, all of that's normal. But how would you know? How would anyone know? Like no one knows because no one tells anybody. Well,
0: and what, and what we get instead are like, you know, TV shows that show us something that is not real. And so You know, there's I had a discussion with the palliative care doctor, Catherine Mannix, who you might know over in the UK, and she made this sort of historical argument that, you know, when people used to die in the home, we were just better educated by the experience of it. And because for lots of reasons, we do more of that away from the home or we do more of our sickness and illness away from the home, people are just not as well equipped with the actual experiential energy of knowing what it's like to see someone dying. And I have to say, again, like I worked in a hospital, I had seen dead bodies, I found the experience of being with my dad as he was dying, like his hands curled up, lots of things that later I was just curious about it. And so I spoke to doctors and they were like, well, you know, the muscles do these. They were describing how the body naturally dies. And that's essentially what you're saying, which is the body knows how to die. And we may, as we watch that, find it startling and upsetting because we haven't seen it, but they didn't do it like this on Grey's Anatomy.
1: Exactly.
0: It doesn't mean it's wrong. And I, I really, again, I appreciated having a, the hospice worker there saying, this is what happens. Like, and, and she said things like his, his breathing is going to elongate. There'll be some periods of time in between his breaths. So, you know, she was just sort of like helping us with our expectation because she knew kind of, it's like you're in a foreign land and you haven't been here before. So we're going to tell you what the culture looks like. What do you find When people are coming to you in distress, what is it that they want you to be able to tell them? What are they looking for you to say about what is happening or what did happen in the death of their loved one?
1: Yeah. So when I'm I'm an actual nurse, like going to see my (laughs) patients and stuff, a lot of times I try to preemptively educate, right? I try to preemptively get ahead of like what they're going to see so they know what's normal, what's not normal because like I said before, you know, there's not, there's not usually a nurse there 24/7. I think a lot of families are pretty surprised by how alone they probably feel. That's one thing I wish Medicare would do is allow to have a 24 hour nurse all the time, or at least during that actively dying phase, just to have some. And that may not always be necessary. Some families are better or more used to it than others or have been through it before or whatever. It just depends. But in general, just to have someone there, like you said, to say, "This is okay, this is normal, Don't worry about that. This is what you know, but we don't always have that. So I try to preemptively educate. Now on social media, yeah, so many people come to me. I mean, i would I would say on a daily basis, and I can't answer everybody, unfortunately, so I'm glad I'm here just sort of generally speaking about it. People want to know, did my loved ones suffer?" I saw this, this, and this. Were they suffering? I they, they did this weird movement at the end. Were they suffering? These really intricate little things where, you know, people hang on to what their loved one's end of life looked like and were they suffering? Are they okay? And my general answer for that, and the reason why I don't do like one-on-one sessions to answer these things is because I feel like I I would be taking advantage of someone's grief Because I think that's a lot of grief. It's just people are just grieving and they need to be reassured continuously that their loved one was okay. And overall, what I'll say is usually the answer is all of that sounds normal, whatever they witnessed, right? Because a lot of the things you witness, the loved one, they just don't know what death looks like. So they associate it with suffering. And the other thing when, when they do, when bodies that are dying do things that I don't normally see I still think they're not suffering because for the most part, I mean, every once in a while there's weird things that happen that you can't explain. I don't know, but like in general, like weird screams or I love one. We thought they were dead and then they suddenly gasped and then they died again. You know, what was that? Were they okay in general? Like Barbara Carnes, who I love describes Mm -hmm. dying, like a laboring process, Mm -hmm. you know, like during labor, when you're giving birth, your body's doing all types of stuff, right? Like that you're not, you're not even, you're not, privy to you're like i don't know what's happening but this is all happening so this baby can be born right and the baby's doing a bunch of weird stuff to be born i don't like using labor because then people associate it with pain i don't think dying is actually painful diseases you die from can be but death itself not really so i just say like all the weird stuff you're seeing at the end of life it's okay especially especially if the loved one if your loved one looks like they're basically sleeping but they're still doing weird snorts or a gasp or a yell even a lot of times people do like a single yell at the end of life or like a silent scream at the end of life which sounds scary but it it's all normal and i think the reassurance part of like i just can't, i just need a lot of reassurance that my loved one is okay is just a part of grief right that 100%. you just need you just need this reassurance that like tell me again tell me again because then your brain at night goes did I give that medication? What if I gave too much? Did I, you know that, and people just need to be reassured that like, it's just hard. It's yeah. just hard sometimes. And losing someone is hard and grieving is hard and we don't ever talk about it. Or we want, at least for me, I really relate to like, I want to be, I want to be comfortable and feel good all the time. Like I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel good. This feels bad, whatever. And I want to be out of it. Or 100%. did I do something wrong? because now I feel really bad. So what did I do to feel bad? How do I get out? You know, it's just so uncomfortable to be uncomfortable. I
0: love what you're saying, because I feel like you and I are kind of like the hand in glove in this, because you're talking about the normative process of what the body does to die, which sounds like it's pretty wide that there, somebody might do that quietly. Someone might scream that there's a wide range of normal. And when people come into my office and and you have also said this, which is you're not doing as much one-on-one that you want to be able to sort of educate the masses. I do fewer sessions that are one-on-one and talk about this in a more general way now, partly because I want more people to know I want to be more efficient with my time. But what I'm talking to people about is what is the normal experience of grieving And so I did this thing when my dad was dying. I knew he was dying. He had small cell cancer. We had a pretty clear understanding of what the trajectory of that particular very vicious kind of cancer. People don't usually live more than a year. So the clock is ticking. So I spent a lot of time going back and forth to see him from DC to Massachusetts. And I said to my husband, I just don't want to have any regrets when he dies. And I will tell you, again, this is in my book. My dad was dead 90 seconds maybe five minutes, maybe somewhere between 90 seconds and five minutes. And the thought came into my head of this one hour where I was in the hospital with him. He, I thought had gone into a surgery. Turns out he was sitting in a hallway and I went and got lunch. Five minutes after my dad died, I was like, God, why did I go get that lunch? Why didn't I just spend that hour with him? And I had this like, like ringing energy in my body and was like, oh shit, you don't get to skip regret. Regret is part of the grieving process. Oh
1: my God. Right. You got to go
0: home. Right. And I had a similar experience with my mom. You know, I've sat with so many people who have told me very painful stories about how someone died in a car accident, drug overdose, you know, murdered, very terrible stories. And then they are suffering with all the things that they didn't do, right? Why didn't they call them? Why didn't they? My mom died. She went to bed in her favorite pajamas. She had her rosary in her hand. She went to sleep and she didn't wake up. And she, and the person that went to find her, she had Hours before, gotten a blessing from her mom senior. She had talked to all of six of her children that day. And the person who found her body was the person she would have wanted to find her body. The most perfect death there ever was. And the very first thought I had after my mom died was, it's your fault she died. And I knew in that moment that that thought was like, like a little ribbon that I could go follow. Go spend all your thinking, Megan, about all the things you should have done differently because here's the other choice in grief. Figure out how you're going to live in a world without a person who's been here your entire life, which is harder. It's way easier to come up with a thousand reasons to blame myself. I, I can do that all day. And if I do that all day, I don't have to think about this other thing that I can't even possibly imagine in this moment. So I spend a lot of time just educating people on what is the purpose of those terrible thoughts and fears and questions that you have,
1: because again,
0: we don't tell people enough about grief and loss, what it's like. And when people come in and they say, I feel crazy. I'm like, yeah, no. Actually, you are a little crazy right now because your brain is having these reactions to try to protect you. So you're not thinking straight. You're not formulating memories. And then you can see them go like, oh my God.
1: Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm.
0: Right. Just to release from the education.
1: I want to (laughs) like, my 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 first instinct is to be like, fuck, that's like, just swear and be like, that's so good. Fuck. Like I'm so I'm so vulgar, Megan. Oh, uh, we love all the f words in here. We we all with the with the shits and the swearing. This is so good. This is so good. And also, like even hearing you say your innermost thoughts right when they die or 90 seconds after they die is like so relieving. At least to me, and I bet everyone else listening, because we don't want to tell people. Right. Are, we don't want to tell people that we don't want to right. tell people, like people who we think people who say, how are you? You know, we're like, oh, we're okay. When they ask about the grieving, how are you doing? Yeah. They don't, I don't think they really want you to say the first thought I, you know, I'm yeah. like, I, I think it's my fault. My mom died. blah blah blah, blah, blah. You yeah. know, like, even though that you're using those thoughts for a whole other reason, but like also even just being able to voice the fact mm-hmm. that like that, that's where you're going. Yeah. Right. That's where you're going with this. Well, and part
0: of the reason I talk about it, right, is if anyone should have been able to navigate this smoothly, it would have yeah. been amazing. my master's degrees and my 20 years of experience helping people. And so again, I feel pretty confident saying, as you do when you're like, no, this is normal, I'm pretty confident saying grief has its own process. Mm. It's a human process. You don't get to skip regrets. You yeah. will have them. Yes. You, don't, you don't get to skip ruminations. you will have them now. What I'm always careful to say on this podcast is when I'm using the experience of my own grief, that was traumatic grief. Mm -hmm. I had a traumatic experience with my mother's death and it needed treatment Mm -hmm. because my symptoms got worse, not better. Yes. I I think most people actually have some experience like mine and it begins to loosen and resolve that they talk to a nurse who says, I think it's okay. I, I think this was a natural death. And they begin to sort of lean into, okay, this, this was okay. That was scary for me because I don't know what death looks like, but this was okay. I should feel like I should have done something different, but I couldn't have done something different that, that, that again, it's just sort of normalizing. And so I felt really committed when I came out of treatment, which was three, one, three weeks long for me, I felt really committed to just be like, and another thing. And another Uh thing, another thing I did and another thing because we do such a poor job of telling people the truth.
1: Yes. Can I say one thing about people who my experience, this is not my personal experience because I haven't, I have had grief and loss, but not in a hospice setting, oddly enough, just through work. But a lot of my patient families who have been caregivers for their loved one. Not maybe for six months, but usually for a long extended chronic illness. Yeah. The, f- the first thing they experience, which they'll whisper to me because they can't stand the fact that this is the truth was relief. Yeah, of course. Relief. And then the guilt and yeah. then the shame for, you know, for having, for experience, you know, for, and then beating themselves up. How can I feel like this? Oh, you know, but many people feel relief. Yeah. Which makes sense
0: actually. Right, like It makes perfect sense that if you are caring for someone who is dying, you are doing a job that you will never be able to get better at because they are dying. That that job ends and that that person is no longer doing the job of dying, that they have succeeded at it. Of course, that would be a relief, right? It was a relief when my daughter finally took her AP history exam and I don't have to quiz her anymore and I don't have to see her stressed out about it. Yeah. So I think when we're, when we can be honest about emotions, I mean, even another thing that happens is grievers often are on the receiving end of some really crazy shit that people say,
1: you know, mm-hmm. like,
0: oh. like, oh, you know, now she, you know, your mother's with your dog in heaven or whatever it is that they're going to say, you know, yeah. at least this, or, you know, you can still get remarried, whatever people oh. say that they, that they mean well, but it's yes. terrible. I will say to grievers, you got to tell them it's terrible. Like it's so unfair that in that moment you have to do any work, but it's either you absorb it or they take it back. Yes. You either hand their garbage back to them. Yes. And say, Thank you. Or it ends up inside your system and you're probably yes. never going to speak to them again. Yes. And, I, and I'm saying this as someone who has said the wrong things to people. I mean, Me I, I, I will watch the words come out of my mouth. I'm like, bang, shut your mouth
1: yes. because it's
0: hard. But we do have to say to people, "Yeah, I don't feel that way," or "You're the second person to tell me I can get remarried," and it really hurts my feelings.
1: Yes, because otherwise, it's hard, but it's so I, important. I it's this is like, but it's so important that, that my, my whole life is like this. My whole life is about nursing and boundaries and how to, you know, like I just, it's you've got to say it. You know, yeah. I just want on a podcast. Sorry, we're getting a little sidetracked, but I think this is really important. I like because- a sidetrack. I'm in for a sidetrack. I my best friend died when I was 17, right? Tragic accident, horrific. And it took me years. I mean, it's not not like years to get over it. Just uh, grief changes, but like years I hung on to. I didn't even know I was hanging on to. There was always this like pit in my stomach, and I always thought it was like because she died, da da da. You know, survivors guilt, all the things, and all of that's true too. And I can cry just think. I can cry just saying right now because like the relief that came when I realized this. And I was mad at her, not mad at her for dying, not mad at her for dying, mad at her because I was 17 and she had been distant from me. Like things had happened in our best friend relationship that we had never addressed, right? And then she died and then it was supposed to, none of that's supposed to matter because she's dead and and that's it. And now all, but it still did. And it took me, I mean, I was probably 30 years old when I had the relief of realizing that I, I could cry because I was mad at her. for something silly, like, and that I never got to address with her. And That's I was carrying that, important. that feeling around of like, I'm still fucking mad at you, bitch. You know what I mean? And right, you never got to resolve it. You yes, never, never got yeah. to resolve it. And then on top of that, trying to hide that that's what I was thinking and feeling and the guilt of being still mad at her, even though she was dead. And it's so silly. We were 17, who cares? Like, but it, it mattered. It mattered. And the second I was able to like voice that and like feel it, it was like such a relief. Oh such my a God. Relief.
0: That's so important what you're saying, because I think part of what happens with grief, like you lose your very own relationship with your best friend. No one loses that. Mm -hmm. many people may lose her, but they don't lose your relationship. And everyone's relationships are imperfect and very specific. And I think what happens when there's a death is like, you know, suddenly the person becomes a grander version of who they were. And it's all a complete tragedy. Like even when someone's 98 years old, we bond like this is a tragedy. And the part of us that we can't speak to ends up like shoved way on the back of the bus. And the uh-huh. thing about feelings are if you don't if you if you push them to the back, you'll create a little bit of shame around them uh-huh. like they're not okay to have. I'm really sorry about your friend that that's yeah. a lot at seventeen. Yeah. When my grandfather died, my very first thought I had because I was fourteen and I was about to go away to boarding school was... Oh, I'm going to miss my orientation to boarding school. Mm-hmm. And then I felt like shit about that pretty much until a therapist said to me, like, asked me, have you ever had kind of like irrational thoughts when someone dies? Like the very first thought is something like either angry or crazy. And I was like, yeah, my grandfather died. I was like more worried about how I was going to get to school and I was kind of pissed. I was going to miss my orientation. And then I felt like a completely shitty person Because, but that also makes sense to me now as a 48 year old woman, a 14 Mm -hmm. year old is worried about school. They have to, that, that doesn't no longer matter just because my grandfather died, whatever tension you had with your best friend was real. Mm -hmm. It was, it was true. It was part of your relationship. It doesn't just drop away simply because she's not here.
1: Right. Right. Right? I mean, that's Mm
0: -hmm. that, that these are all the things that we don't talk about. You just said something that I want to ask you about because I get asked it all the time and I used to lie because I felt like I was supposed to lie. And now I just tell the truth, which is I know nothing. You just said, I haven't had a grief experience in hospice. I have in my, in my life. Can you talk to us about how that works as a trauma therapist? One of the things I would get asked, you know, is like, and, and are you taught? Are you trained, Megan, so that you know these feelings don't derail you or overwhelm you? And and everyone would be like, Yes, yes, we're taught. We learn, we have these skills. And that I sat on a panel one time and a young woman said it and I was like, What were you taught? I'm really curious. Like, what class did you take? Because I did not take one. What I have I missed I miss that. I missed it. I missed it. Right. I have I have two decades worth of my own personal therapy, but I am curious about like is it, does hospice call to it people who are good with boundaries and, you know, don't take the work home? Is it, do people do hospice for three? Like when I was in the emergency room, they said that you will not work here more than 12 months. And I lasted 10, you know, how, how does it work? Are you guys trained? Do you have some way of, of sort of not absorbing it? Or do you go home and cry for the families that, that had their loss? Well, I mean, I know you can't speak for the whole profession,
1: but I am curious. So no, I wasn't trained. I'll tell you that. So I don't know what everyone else. No, I was not. I will say for me personally, the ICU was much harder, much harder. I could not split those two up. Like the ICU to me was Something about it, the ICU was so hard. One, I'm a recovering alcoholic, FYI, a whole other podcast. But so that I say that because it played a huge role and it's played a huge role in my life. I'm no, I'm in, I'm in a 12 step program, yada, yada, yada. So that plays a huge thing. But when I was in the ICU, I was not. So I heavily drank not at work, but after work, I wouldn't say like at the time I wouldn't have been like, I'm drinking because of my patients. Oh, but for sure I was <laughs> yeah. because it was just super, super, super stressful, yeah. super stressful. No matter what was going on, just the timing of it all, all of it was really stressful to me Yeah, and sad and awful and bodies. Right. Were... Those,
0: those people were trying to keep alive. Yes. And, and, and unlikely
1: The limbs were black and, you know, we were just doing it. and some, yeah. people lived. some people lived, a lot of people lived, yeah. but it still was, yeah stressful I didn't like it and I drank a lot around it and I whatever hospice to me does not feel like that because I believe in it so much like I believe in hospice so much I understand it well my understanding to this day I'm sure it'll change whatever everything's always evolving but we we are all going to die I have seen what it looks like to die in an ICU I would much rather have someone be dying at home with their family if they're going to die yes it's sad I have crazy good boundaries, which I've learned just through being a nurse for a long time. So probably so good that I could almost seem callous. I think Mm -hmm. like I I have, but I think it's important. I think it's important. I'm a good, I know I'm a good nurse. (laughs) I know I have compassion and empathy and I have compassion and empathy for myself and I have good ass boundaries. I also work in California. We're also unionized. So we have, I can say no a lot to things. I am not at someone's beck and call. I'm not, and I'm never a nurse at there 24 seven. I will not answer my personal cell or my work cell if I'm not working. I won't answer it after five. I won't, you know, like I do things. So uh, it's not that I'm not attached. It's like, I have to have boundaries. And there are times when I will overstep those boundaries for whatever reason. There was a family I can think of that was doing the death with dignity where a man was drinking medication to end his own life. Cause I live in California, we can do that. Yeah. And I overstepped my boundaries and I can tell because I was down for two days. I couldn't work. Like I could not work, couldn't get out of bed crying. Just because not because I was so sad he died, but because it was so profound and so like he was up and living one day and then drank this thing and was not. And I was there for the whole thing. And and it wasn't even really sad. It was just like this wild thing to witness. And yeah. And I worked later than I needed to. I stayed longer. I, I came in earlier. I did all the things that I would normally never, ever do. And I was, I couldn't work for two days. <laughs> Literally I did not work. I called it at work. I was like, sorry, I can't do this. I need this. I had to stay home and like cry. And, <laughs> and that's okay too. But so that was really long winded. I have really, really crazy, yeah. crazy boundaries. And because, and I don't think it's wildly sad because the grief, I feel like the grief is somewhat removed from me. Like when I witness someone dying, which, and I see the loved ones crying and, and, and all the sadness and the grief around me, I still see, because I'm not the one who's losing the loved one. I still see like the love mostly. And to me, I will leave my, I will leave that house and go to my car and cry, but not from sadness, Mm -hmm. from overwhelm of beauty. From, like, that really, it actually feels like a, like, talk about woo-woo, or or, or, whatever you were, yeah, the spiritual side of it, to me, it really feels like, holy shit, I just witnessed what life is all about. This is what life is all about. It doesn't feel sad. It feels like I witnessed a miracle, like, that I got to witness all this love, and, I and, it feels like a little bit of a veil is lifted. Like when I see a baby being born, I will instantly cry. Like the second I see a baby like, like new to the earth and crying, it makes me weep because it feels like they are they're like coming in on angels' wings or something, right? And that is how it feels like when I watch someone take their last breath. It doesn't feel sad. I have a
0: lot of chills when you're talking. so, I don't think I've told this story in the podcast before, but, but a while back, I did a retreat up at a yoga center and there was a new intuitive there. And I love intuitives. I have an intuitive who I work with and I am very energetic. So I feel energy through my body. And that's how I know when we're sort of in the truth or when something's going to transform. It's part of what makes me a good trauma therapist. And I sat down with this new intuitive and she said, you need to quit your job. And immediately my response, because I can be a real asshole, was, is that how you start? You tell people they need to like leave their partner, or quit their job. Like you just throw a coin. I mean, this is what I said to this woman. And she was like, no, I, you need to quit your job. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And, you know, thanks for your help. And I left. I didn't even listen to the rest of it. And I went and did more work with these executives I had up there. And then that night I had a dream. And I woke up from the dream and the, and I had this clear thought, which happens to me every once in a while. It did when my mom died, which was, you need to quit your job. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> so I go back the next day after being a complete asshole to this woman. And I'm like, Hey, hi. She goes, oh my God, I had a dream about you. And I was like, yeah, I know. Can you say more? I, I had not, I, she didn't know what I did. She didn't know who I was. And she said to me, You need to quit your job because the way you do your job is you go to the well of your trauma and you pull it up so that you can support and be there for whomever it is that you work for or with. And I was like, oh my God, (laughs) I had just written this whole piece about the difference between empathy and compassion that we say we want empathetic workplaces but we don't empathetic workplaces is everybody bringing up their past experiences and running around and being like no uh, julie i know how you feel because when my cat died that we do not want that what we want is for you to be able to stay regulated yes. remember, don't pull up your past experiences yes. just, just remember it
1: yes
0: Call on it as an intellectual exercise and show that person human understanding, but do not get soaking wet in the energy yes.
1: of your past yes. experience. And that's- this, right? Go okay, ahead. Go ahead. Yes. Well, I was just gonna. I mean, that's why I feel like when I said, like, "Oh, I might seem callous." Like, I feel like when people are like, "How do you do it?" Like, it's not about me. Like, wow. I'm not. I'm not in it. Like, that's not. I'm not in it. Like, I, but I'm still. I'm still there. Like, if if anything, when you said like your nurse for your family was like not afraid of death that is how it feels it feels like i am the one who is like the not stoic that's but the person who's like the stillness in the chaos being like (laughs) like there's not you know and then i leave and that's kind of it you know like and i think people who don't get it don't get it you know they're just they they might they might think i sound callous and it's not, to me, it's not, it's, no. It's well, it, is, it also
0: does sound to me sober. So I really appreciate you telling me that oh, story yeah. because I think, again, I think people sometimes who are ne- negotiating their own ideas around sobriety or early in sobriety, they still have some energy around what it actually means to be yeah. an addict or to be someone who is sober And really my experience with people who are sober is that they are incredibly intentional with their energy and they are very intentional with their boundaries because it's dangerous to get pulled into other people's emotional experience because it will leave, it will leave barnacles, scars, and scratches on you. And it's not even yours. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's interesting because maybe the answer to the question is part of the reason that you can do it is that you had a different period of your life where your emotions were being regulated by alcohol and not well, right. You know, it doesn't not do a good well job. Regulated. It's no. a depressant. It doesn't do a good job and it causes no. its own problems. Yeah. But, but I appreciate what you're saying because I still, to this day, don't think I would make a good hospital, social worker, hospice worker, my ability to, I'm I, i I'm good with boundaries in a lot of ways, but my ability to gather my energy, it like can go away from me in ways that then it sort of drags me behind it. Yeah. And, and what I feel like since my mom died and I had PTSD is that I had like an M&M candy coating that cracked and I'm never uh. going to get it again. So I'm just, you know, like, the world and things can kind of touch me and get in there. And so my boundaries are about that sort of respecting that actually I shouldn't be the one doing all this with you.
1: Well, when did that lady say this? Like, when was that? Like, did you know, that that was about,
0: it was was about 18 months ago. So it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I still, I still work and I still have clients who I adore. I, I get to love my clients, which is really great. I get to care about them in a way that has boundaries But I'm not doing the heavy lifting trauma work, the somatic work that I used to do where really it is, you know, kind of like Reiki, like I'm using my energy to help you move your energy and I'm good at that, but -hmm. it's not good for me. Yeah. So I'm trying to use other platforms to talk about what I think is really important. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, you and I have been talking and I still have the hot and cold and I end up having to kind of regulate, regulate that but it doesn't it doesn't drag me the way yeah. some of the trauma work does. Can you talk a little bit about the the choice the decision to start talking on the internet and what that has been like for you? Cuz you got a big um, following and I imagine people have a lot a lot of questions and
1: yeah, it was so it was almost 2 years ago, almost 2 years to the day, and I had probably a couple of weeks to a month before. I had had a couple friends go through their parents dying and they were close friends and I was helping them through that and talking to them and saying certain things and their reactions to the things I was saying about like what, what death looks like and oh, that's normal. And this is why this is happening. And blah, 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 blah. they would be like, oh my God, like they're my really close friends. And like, cause most people in my life don't want to talk about my nurse before I was doing the social media thing. Right. Like That's right. I would say I was a hospice nurse at like a party and would kind of be like, Oh wow. Like it's always like
0: you and I should go out together. <laughs> trauma therapist and hospice nurse.
1: <laughs> We're going to be in the corner
0: and yeah. no one's, or, or people are going to want to come over and whisper in your ear. Right. Yes, it's or
1: they'll be like, oh. or they'll be the like, cute angel. You know, it's like so yeah. <laughs> uncomfortable where no, it's like, I swear a lot what's happening. <laughs> but so they would be like, I can't believe you know this stuff and like how do you even know this? And I'm like, dude, this is what I do every day. Yeah, like this is job. you can call me, like, just let me know. I'll help you. Whatever. So my one friend in particular was like, you need to tell people about this. You need to tell people about this. People need to know about this because my family is losing their freaking minds. And I mean, not to talk bad about their hospice nurses, but most hospice nurses are great. And theirs were great too, but they just weren't hearing it how they yeah. needed to hear it for some yeah. reason. Yeah. From their you it. Yeah. So then I was telling him and they were like, you need to tell people, people need to hear this. You should do a podcast. You should do this. And at first I was going to do a podcast. And then it was like, I'm so that, I mean, people won't believe this, but I'm actually really bad at stuff like that, like, like technology and like editing and microphones. And I believe you, I don't know what I'm yeah. doing. So I realized like, that's pretty hard. And then I went home to see my nieces who are 12 and 13 now and they were on TikTok doing dances and things Technology, yeah right and yeah. they wanted me to do it with them and i'm like making fun of them and teasing them about their new little app that's silly and i did you can find these tiktoks probably somewhere i'm on tiktok like doing dances with my nieces <laughs> and i Not got only. TikTok, right and i got tiktok to watch their tiktoks and then i started seeing people not like me, but like my age, right? Like talking yeah. about space and talking about baking and things. And I'm like, this thing is amazing. What the hell is this? I'm going to make TikToks. It's a teaching and platform. I know. It's it really, it's very addicting, I will say. I mean, that's like not, probably not the best for me, but, but yeah, so I made TikToks being like, I'm going to try to do TikToks on death and dying on TikTok. And mm-hmm. four days into it, one went viral and I got thousands and thousands of followers. And the the next video went viral and thousands Mm -hmm. of more, like, it was one of those things like I was talking to you earlier where it was like, it feels like it just happened to me. Yeah. And I was excited and validated to see that like people maybe are ready to learn about death and dying. Mm -hmm. And it's been, it's like these past two years have been like this wild ride that I never could have ever imagined ever imagined.
0: Well, I mean, what I'm so grateful for, because I'm one of those people who watches those TikToks. And again, the, you know, I'm not the average bear about even death. I know more, I'm learning new stuff all the time. I mean, you posted a video the other day with some warnings about someone's breath while they're dying. I mean, it's so educational. It's so important. You are also going to be writing a book, I heard. Yeah, and I know you're re- running a retreat. Tell us about what these TikToks have been, have led to for you other than just, you know, adoring fans who are grateful that you <laughs> were teaching them stuff they didn't
1: already know. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, well, the book, so I am writing a book It's being published next year. I'm currently writing it and I have an editor and, you know, we were talking earlier about how, <laughs> how long it takes to write a book. Who knew? Long time. But yes, so I am writing a book. The book is going to be like my TikToks. It's just sort of like another way for people to get this information because not everyone likes to be on social media, especially TikTok. So that's coming out next year. I'm super excited about it. It's been wild. And then I've met friends on social media, other hospice nurses and doctors who are so amazing. Nurse Penny, Hospice Nurse Penny, who's also on TikTok and all social media. We are like besties. Uh, we have met on TikTok and we are truly, we talk every day. And now her and I are going to be doing a retreat uh, in North Carolina. I know I've never at, been to the retreat center. At the as center as well. for living. Yes. Have so you been? Yeah. yeah, I have. Yeah. And you Boone, Boone yes. North Carolina. Yeah. It looks amazing. What looks you amazing. don't
0: know and you can't see on the site is there is a huge pagoda temple. So be ready for that. Like, yes, okay. there's a retreat center and- there is this giant white temple wow. right there. I I was, I didn't know. I didn't know that that was going to be. I didn't know either.
1: And I, yeah, so her and I are doing a retreat this fall. I have a website, hospicenursejulie.com. We need really to put that in the
0: show notes for anybody yes. that's looking
1: for it. So like that can keep you kind of track of like the retreat, the book when it's coming out. I like to put like special videos up there because some people want to see, it's kind of hard to navigate the videos, right? So my website's like an easier place to kind of navigate the videos and I'm on all social media platforms. So I like talking about that because I do like one to three minutes on like Instagram and Instagram and TikTok, but on YouTube, Facebook, I do longer form videos that are actually professionally done by these two guys who I love. I love them. And, you know, I'm just sort of letting things unfold. I'm just letting things unfold and seeing what's happening. But those are the two main things right now, the retreat and the the book that I'm just I love. Really I really
0: uh, I love talking to you. I could talk Thank to you, you all day, and okay. I hope I hope we do something. I hope we find a conference or I, we're going to end up in the same bookshop. I know that at some point. yeah, uh, but I really appreciate also the way that you're talking about for people to hear that sometimes when you're kind of like called into purpose, that it doesn't have to, it doesn't end up being that hard that yeah. that things come to you and curtains fall away. And if you can sort of call on your courage to go do TikTok, if that's what, you know, if that, but, but it, you don't have to know all the things you yes. just have to, you just have to care about your corner of the earth. Yes. Move forward if you have right.
1: something to say, say it, if you, have yeah. something, you know, like, like really, I, 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 all of the things that are happening right now, it truly feels like, and I used to hear people say this and I would get kind of annoyed, but it Me does too. really feel like I not do, like, I don't have to do anything. Like, yeah. I mean, I do do work for it, but it doesn't no, no, feel no, no, like no.
0: I know. I mean, I've it's seen really doesn't you know, feel like working like all the time, but what you're saying is uh, my friend, my friend, Laura Perry, Perry says, you know, is it hard for you or is it bad for you? Like, things can be hard, but that doesn't mean they're a problem. They're just, you know, we're working a lot. We're trying really hard. What you're describing as your work, you're doing a lot of work. You're writing a book, you're organizing these retreats, but it hasn't been hard way. That is a struggle. It's just here you are with your message, which is obviously an important message. So you just go do the next right thing. And I agree with you. I feel like Elizabeth Gilbert and Oprah and Brene Brown and those folks say these things. And I'm like, will you just shut up about yeah. how it's like not, but when I see people that are in their purpose, that does seem to be the story yes. that they're telling, which is no, no, I'm just working on the part that's for me. And the other things that are, you know, like finding a publisher or finding an agent or all the, you know, that all that stuff came to you.
1: Yes. There, there was no hustle. Like, I hate, I don't know why I say I hate saying that I guess, because it feels like, Oh, well, good for you. Like but earn, like, like, but like that's what I it's yeah. like, I like this whole idea of like, net, who do I network? Who do I talk to? Who do I net- Nope. I have done none of that. Yeah. 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 I know. And I thank God, because I'd be awful at it. I can't. I can't do those things. Right. I can't do it.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I, and again, you got to just keep doing what you're doing. And for people who are listening and thinking like, well, nobody's dying in my life. Remember that what we're trying to do here is shift the culture of death and dying. Yes. We are more death and dying and grief informed yeah. so that listening to a podcast, reading a book, watching a TikTok, even if you are not in it in this moment, you will be, that is the yeah. guarantee at some point, if you're not the griever right now, that's just because this is the lap on the track that you're on. At some <laughs> point you are going to be the griever. And at some point, people that you really love and care about. I mean, if you're listening to grief as my side hustle, you've got some grief going on anyway. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sharing these videos that you're doing so that people can, you know, these little bite-sized nuggets of like, oh, I didn't know that. And I mean, I can think of 20 times where I'm like, oh, I mean, maybe I a little bit know that, but she just said that in a way that I hadn't really like thought about or considered. And I just think, you know, that's the best possible outcome. Is that everybody knows a little bit more so that when it is our turn, we feel a little less crazy, a little more able to do the impossible thing, which is, you know, either do the dying ourselves or be there with the people who are dying or support the people who are, you know, impacted by the death. Yeah. This has been a very lovely hour for me. I am totally and completely delighted. I was supposed to only keep you for an hour, yeah, it's okay. but I talk to you forever. Thank you All so right. much. It's such an honor and I'm sure we'll so be the next nice day. to meet you. Right. Take All care. Bye-bye. Right. Hey folks, I have a quick favor to ask. If you are enjoying Grief is my side hustle podcast, could you run over to Apple? Pull up the show, scroll down to the middle where it says reviews, and give us a review. Give us a five-star review, write a comment, say what you like about the show. Every time you do that, it's really helpful because it allows other people to see the show. The algorithm works so that the more comments that we get and the more stars that we get, the more often they put it in people's feed and people realize, oh, hey, this podcast is out there. Thanks so much for supporting us.